When are you an American Express member? When you travel with the American Express Platinum Card and have access to Centurion lounges at over 40 locations worldwide, you're a member. When your American Express Platinum Card gets you seated at exclusive tables at renowned restaurants through Global Dining Access by Resi, you're a member. When you arrive at live events through dedicated American Express card member entrances at select venues, yeah, you're a member. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. When something happens to your car, you might say... But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So, just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and... Producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, everyone. I'm Wilmer Valderrama. And I'm Mr. Raquel, and you're listening to Essential Voices. So what have we got going on this week, Wilmer? I feel like this week's episode is all about going back to the beginning the beginning of the pandemic, the beginning of the show, when we think back to March of 2020, I don't know about you, but I picture the grocery store. It was the one place where everyone had to go, right? It was where we saw our neighbors and their reactions to what was going on, ranging from makeshift PPE all the way to outrage, to refusing to wear masks or treat employees with dignity and respect. It was also where we saw empty shelves and had to make some hard choices about what we really needed with no idea how long we were going to hunker down. Yeah, you're so right. I mean, I remember needing a few items to um, make food for my mom when she actually came down with a bad case of the shingles right at the beginning of the pandemic. And the grocery stores around us were totally empty. But luckily, we had our dog Maddie to keep us company while things felt so uncertain. And that dog love made all the difference. You said it. I was lucky to have my family and my dog Maroc as well. And at the center of all that uncertainty were the grocery store workers when customers were able able to get in and out with their flour and eggs as fast as they could. Grocery store employees had to stay inside and bear the brunt of customer emotions. They were the reason we had food in our pantries, but they were also very vulnerable to COVID-19. So this week's episode pays tribute to all the grocery store workers out there who didn't ask to be in the front lines, but became synonymous with the emerging term essential workers during the pandemic. And grocery store workers will continue being essential long after the pandemic. So today we're going to hear from essential worker Ben Hess, who's a grocery store worker and who's been working in California throughout the pandemic. Ben provides us with some much needed perspective on what it was like to work in a place that many folks take for granted. He also gets real with us about the toll that COVID-19 took on his mental health, which he couldn't have imagined when he took his job. After that, we'll have a roundtable with actress, activist, director, and producer Sophia Bush and Jim Arabi, the director of strategic campaigns for the United Food and Commercial Workers Local 5 Union. Well, let's get rolling. Ben's story starts right now. 
Ben, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate you uh, chatting with me. You were one of the reasons why I wanted to do this show and develop this platform. So I'm going to start with, um, tell me a little bit how you got into this line of work. I mean, when did you get into how long ago you've been doing it and what you do? I've been working in grocery stores since the end of 2009. I started in Chicago because uh, that's where about I'm from. And at first it was just kind of a needed a job, needed to do something. But at some point I realized I kind of, I kind of enjoy it a, a little bit. There's, there's definitely some neat things about working in a grocery store or working with so many people or seeing so many people. You're in the midst of it and, and things can get real weird. And I'm a big fan of the real weird. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's amazing. So you really found a passion for this, right? So this is something you, you appreciate the community, you appreciate your colleagues. And then there's a level of familiarity that comes with that, right? Yeah. I mean, it ebbs and flows. There's definitely moments where I'm like, I've had enough. It is time for a career change. I have got to get out of here. <laughs> this is no more. And then there's times where it's like, yeah, this is, this is fine. What are those moments like the ones that you go, this is fine? Usually it's, it's when I have a, a customer come up to me and, you know, they see something and they want to tell you a story. More often than not, the best relationships they strike up are with older folks. If you get younger folks, they already got their headphones on, they're programmed, they're on their daily grind. They're not here to, to mess around. Yeah. And that's fine. I get, that's how I shop. But then, you know, to get to people that don't oh, got a lot going on, come in like clockwork two or three times a week, they know your name and uh, you try to remember theirs and they'll, they'll tell you about, you know, anything. I had, I had a guy who recognized a band patch um, I had on my, my shirt from the town that he used to live in. And he's like, I know those guys. He's like, I know those guys too. And it's, oh. And then suddenly we're talking about bands and we're talking about instruments. This is how, you know, you break up the monotony because what I do every day is it stays pretty routine to really break that up is the customers and the real good ones are the ones that already know that you're a human and treat you like such. And we're as humans. We're, we're social species. We're supposed to talk to each other and share dumb little stories. And I, I love stories. I'm grateful that you could, you know, walk me a little bit through what your day is like. Uh, I think about all of a sudden you get introduced to this pandemic and then, you know, your work now is all of a sudden is deemed essential, you know, and you're now have to really stay at work, you know, and really do what you got to do because it's bigger than us. How was that like for you? We didn't have much of a shift in hours, but we definitely took on a lot more responsibilities in that same time period that we had to work. It's one of the nice things about being in a union is, there's kind of encouragements for keeping our hours within a reason. So I'm, I'm lucky in that way, but I know that's not true of a lot of grocery stores throughout the nation. But in the beginning, the first month or two, I got a lot of people saying, thank you for being here. And you got a lot of jobs that are deemed, I guess, not, I hate to say the word non-essential, but you know, people working from home, maybe office jobs. And you get these people come in and they say, thank you for being here. And it's, I understand that there is a sense of what they're trying to convey, but it's, I, this isn't a choice for me. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not a choice for a lot of us. You did some work with your union in organizing and advocating uh, for labor rights, right? You got involved in some of that stuff? 
Well, I mean, that's, that's what the union does pretty, you know, full time. I am a shop steward. So I'm kind of a go between, between my coworkers and the union. I'm kind of like the eyes and ears for the union. What's happening in the store um, or the, you know, the dirty little rat um, <laughs> as I kind of introduce myself as. And sometimes I can help my, my coworkers. I have a question that regards the union, but more often than not, I, I kind of just help them contact direct with the union because they've got the experience and they get paid. <laughs> That's what we pay them for to really help guide us through challenges. As we're seeing things kind of softly reopened up and rules being dropped, you know, as, as things progressed, what effects have it had on you personally? I mean, I know that you've probably had incidents with customers where someone snapped or something like that. And then do you feel like there's been a ripple effect to that? Like, how are you feeling? How are you feeling today? I am feeling pretty good today, but I'm feeling pretty good today in part because of changes in my life that I've had to make because of this ripple effect. I, I now take um, medication for my brain, uh, which was not something I did before last summer. And it's been a real help. It might've benefited me probably before the pandemic, but it didn't become a necessity until you build up all this stress. And this is true of everyone that's still had to go and work in the retail. Cause there's just, there's so much coming at you. You're, you're given these rules from the government. You're getting rules from your employer. You're getting opinions that you're forming yourself based on the news. And you're trying to figure out how to meld them together. And at the same time, you're getting people who are combative about it. And you're trying to just function. Right. Just trying to function, just trying to make it together. So yeah, there was a point last year where I had, a little bit of an outburst that wasn't great. And it was just me unloading on somebody. Uh, there was a misunderstanding and they got about three or four months of, of stress just smashed on them. And I went home and I cried not for the first time uh, that week. And it was just, it was awful. And so the silver lining is I have this tool now that makes things a little bit easier to handle. My solution isn't everyone's solution, but my problem is everyone's problem, which is, you know, you don't want to get sick. <laughs> you don't want to get sick because you don't want to spread it. You don't want to spread it at home to your, your loved ones, to your pets. And I did get sick. And my, my partner moved out of the house and moved into a hotel for two weeks and took the dogs with her. And <laughs> I was just staying in the attic. It's kind of, waited it out. And, um, so there's, I, I mean, I, I caught COVID. I, I, I have no idea how I got it. I probably got it from a customer, you know, not, not to be hard on my customers. I love them, but we didn't sign up for this job. When we started working in grocery stores, you know, many of us weren't thinking about, we'll be at the front lines when there's a pandemic, whenever that rolls around versus when you, you take a job as a firefighter or a doctor, you understand there's risks. And, and that's with any job, you understand what you're, you're going into. And so the difficult thing was when you hear this, you know, thank you for being here. You want, you appreciate the sentiment, but it's also like, yeah, but I still got to pay my rent. No one said, Hey Ben, do you, do you want to work from home today? On the other hand, it's, it's really nice to feel a part of the community in this way. So I'm, I'm really, we are all stepping up for the community. Just we're here and we are coming to work. We know you need food. 
Well, Ben, thank you so much for sharing all of this. We're, uh, we're stoked and we're proud of you. And, um, you know, I know that you heard it enough, but, um, you know, thanks, man. Thanks for enduring what you did. <laughs> thank you for thanking me. Ben was so open with us about the toll that his job took on him the past year. I mean, he had to face so many obstacles every day just to make sure his community had what they needed. And he also did this while taking care of his mental health on top of getting COVID and having to be apart from his loved ones while he convalesced. His story is a great example of why performative acts of things can't be where we stop. Right? When it comes to supporting the people who work so hard to provide us with food in the fields, in the restaurants, and our grocery stores. On that note, after the break, we'll talk with Sophia Bush and Jim Arabi. When are you an American Express member? When you travel with the American Express Platinum Card and have access to Centurion lounges at over 40 locations worldwide, you're a member. When your American Express Platinum Card gets you seated at exclusive tables at renowned restaurants through Global Dining Access by Resi, you're a member. When you arrive at live events through dedicated American Express card member entrances at select venues, yeah, you're a member. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. When you buy a new house, you might say, Shut the front door. Winning. No, seriously, shut the front door. We own this house now. But you actually need to say, Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. The local State Farm agent is there to help you choose the coverage you need. Welcome to my crib. <laughs> no one says that anymore, but I don't care. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This week, we're hearing conversation with actress and activist Sophia Bush and Jim Arabi from the United Food and Commercial Workers Local 5 Union. Sophia, hi. Jim, hi. Uh, Wilmer, want to kick us off? Well, Sophia, Jim, I am so blessed to have you here. So just kind of starting things off a little bit, what were some of your reactions to Ben's story? And let's start with you, Sophia. Oh, well, I, you know, I had kind of home away from hometown pride when Ben was talking about working in Chicago. I wanted to be like, was he at my local grocery store when I lived there? But immediate nostalgia aside, the thing I thought that was so beautiful where he said, my solution isn't everyone's solution, but my problem is everyone's problem. The universality of so many people struggling to take care of themselves and manage their stress in the world as it is. And then those compounding stressors and difficulties and risks that came from the pandemic. I just really felt that. I think so many of us realized in a very profound way that we truly are connected in not just what happens to the world happens to all of us, but truly in every interaction I have with a person right now could either risk or protect their life. I mean, that's a big thing we all had to shoulder as a community. And I was just really very touched by that. Thank you. What about you, Jim? 
Ben's story is the story of all of our members and what they've went through over the pandemic. I thought a lot about, if you guys remember that movie, A Day Without a Mexican, when it was about, you know, what would happen if all the service workers went away? What if what a day without an essential worker? What would we been in the pandemic without essential workers? And as we've come through this, I think it was a good feeling for our members for the first couple of months when everyone's like, thank you. But as you heard Ben's story, it kind of changed as the pandemic dragged on. And these underlying issues became a huge issue, including mental health and you know, I think the mental health issues that our members faced, that everyone faced during this pandemic were exacerbated by the stresses that were put on by people not knowing what was going on. Ben really told a compelling story that was representative of what every single worker went through because they couldn't work from home. They had to go to work and they were worried about what happened when they went to work. And, you know, Ben's story, again, the other thing was when his partner moved out for two weeks with his dog, he was sitting alone in his attic. I mean, that's a very sad story that he had to go in the next day and deal with customers every day and deal with those stresses that those customers had. So a very real story. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for sharing that. I'm with you. That part of Ben's story when he had to move out because he got COVID really drove home the significant burden that was placed on essential workers like Ben. I mean, he wasn't able to be with his loved ones while he was sick and he couldn't go into work, which, you know, as he said, was probably the place that got him sick in the first place. Um, Pre-pandemic, grocery store employees weren't thought of as essential, but his story shows just how essential Ben is, which I find very inspiring. Um, And speaking of being inspired, Sophia, I want to turn it over to you because it seems like you found Ben's story very inspiring and your podcast, Work in Progress, is all about folks who inspire you. So why do essential workers like Ben inspire you and the work that you do? I think um, that the root for me if I really zoom out and understand why community advocacy matters to me, why authentic conversation matters to me, it's because it has the capacity to do away with the false narrative of the us and them. This idea that people are different from each other, that we're supposed to yell at each other from these weird corners, that there are pundits on the news who celebrate their families coming to America story while denigrating immigrants and people who are struggling today. All of that is, frankly, bullshit. And again, it comes to narrative, it comes to story, it comes to, at times, political propaganda. And I think it can also come from ignorance or a lack of awareness when you haven't learned enough, seen enough, met enough people who are different from you. And so for me, I really do believe it is essential that we see each other and that we can honor each other's humanity and learn to identify the stories that attack that shared humanity. Because in the attacking of it, some people who are unscrupulous can make a lot of money. How can we undo the damage of those things. And um, so for me, that in my own way as a storyteller, it feels like an essential use of what my capability is in my job. If I can welcome more people to the table to witness each other, I feel like I'm living with a real purpose. Mm, Wow, Sophia, that's just, it's just beautiful what you just shared. And I love what you just said about sharing one another's humanity and thinking critically about what your role is as a storyteller and with your platform. Um, The power of sharing stories so that people feel seen and and listened to is just incredible and it's endless. Thanks so much for sharing your thoughts. And to turn it over to you, Jim, what inspired you to work as a union organizer? Sure. So, you know, I grew up in Boston and even though I grew up a working class Boston, I got my first job at 14 at a grocery store and I was the first one to go to college in my family. 
And during college, I got really involved in student organizing. And there was a moment in 1998 when, you know, the WTO protests in Seattle, and there was like this really big discussion related to sort of world trade and global trade. And at that moment, I was 20 years old and felt like this was like a moment we could sort of reform global capitalism. And so I got, I jumped in and then I graduated college and I'm like, oh crap, I have to get a job. And I had a professor who was like, you know, you can do what you do and get paid for it. And I was like, what? And so um, ever since then, I've been working for unions. I started with SEIU and then worked for the teachers for a while. And I've been at UFCW for almost 10 years now. And, and UFCW is really where I found my home and my voice because it's these workers are me. These workers are my people. They're working class people struggling to make it every day. They're young kids going to high school and college. And they're 40-year-old people just trying to support a family. You know, they're 60-year-old people with the second income. And and it's really interesting. It's like when you go to a grocery store or you go to a pharmacy or you go wherever, right? All these workers we represent. How many times you just walk by those people and don't even realize they're there? And another thing that in Ben's story that was interesting is like who interacts with him? You know, it's like the older folks that come in and you know, they just want to have a conversation with people, right? They just want to talk to people and the impact that you can have on those people's lives and vice versa when you're, you know, I remember 16, 17 years old stacking produce, you know, just had great conversations with folks just about life. This connectivity is something that you all talk about, you know, how we can reset our priorities in the world. I think part of that reset is we have to get back to the basics of having conversations with people and seeing people as human and not just someone that's there to serve me, right? And I think so much of retail and service workers, uh, never mind the workers that work behind the scenes, you know, that don't even get to interact with customers, is we dehumanize people. How do we rehumanize each other and take this moment that we're in to really assert that right. And it's not going to be given up easy. You know, I, I think having a conversation is one thing, but how do we take that conversation we're having and turn it into action and get those that don't want us to have these conversations that want to separate us and divide us and alienate each other and look at each other as, you know, that way is how do we reconnect and re-empower to, to really change the world? And I think there's an opportunity here to really reassert the true value of being people. We'll be right back after this break. When are you an American Express member? When you travel with the American Express Platinum Card and have access to Centurion lounges at over 40 locations worldwide, you're a member. When your American Express Platinum Card gets you seated at exclusive tables at renowned restaurants through Global Dining Access by Resi, you're a member. When you arrive at live events through dedicated American Express card member entrances at select venues, yeah, you're a member. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. When something happens to your car, you might say, No! My car! But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So, just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back to Essential Voices. 
I think you're right. I mean, I feel like we do have a window right now and we all have a little bit of responsibility to just show up, right? In most of our perspectives, and I guess I can honestly speak for Sophia and I when I say that when we first started our careers, we were told, you don't give your opinion about religion, you don't give your opinion about politics, and you certainly don't say anything that you don't want to hear ever back again, <laughs> you know? And that was the first advice in how we were programmed to be. No comment on anything because what you did was just you were entertained slowly we started realizing what we had in common with our fans and our audiences and all that and realized that if we were in a position to help them the way they've helped our careers then we should really show up and in speaking of showing up and you're talking about the unions and their role in this Sophia you've recently advocated for unions like International Alliance of Theatrical States and Employees on your social media feed why is it important that you support labor rights our jobs don't exist without our crews you know, it's interesting over the weekend, there's a, a really great Instagram account at IA stories, it's IA underscore stories. And they've been posting anonymous stories from all of these people who work on film crews. And I've been chatting with my B camera operator from one show and a steady cam guy from another show. And my girlfriend, Corinne, who worked camera crew on a show I did. And we're all just talking about all of this. And what's been really interesting is getting into these discussions with people who I love, who I consider my family. I mean, Wilmer, we talk about each other in these ways because you do build a family when you're on set. And for a really long time, everyone has loved that and said, you know, we do it because we love the work. We do it because we love each other. We spend more time with our crews than we ever spend with our families. And everyone is in a moment where they're going, but why? Why do we have to be at work for 17 hours a day? Why are people expected to work 100 hours a week? Why has it been okay to say to people, you can't go to your sister's wedding, you can't go to your grandfather's funeral, you won't see your nephew be born? Why? And so it's crazy for me to think about the solidarity of experience and to know that when I've advocated for my crews, I've had producers be like, what do you care? I sign your paychecks. I had a boss look at me. I've talked a little bit about this, but I didn't get into the particulars. I was working on a job that the conditions were crazy. I mean, outside in the dead of winter and 40 degrees below zero. And I went to my bosses for a season and I said, guys, this is nuts. Like we're, we're working outside. People are killing themselves. And I said, you know, but we've got these PAs, we've got these kids, they can't afford high tech Everest gear that the producers are wearing outside. They're doing lockups on corners. And I said, three of our PAs have walking pneumonia. Like this PA, I'm going to pick a name that isn't his name because I'm not trying to throw him under the bus in his union. But I was like, you know, John, this is the third time he's had pneumonia this winter. And you know what my boss said to me? We can get another John. What do you care? And I was like, I don't know if this is for me. Like, I don't know if this environment is for me. And so for me, to Jim's point, unions are the way we get anywhere. If my union can stand with IATSE, you know, people assume that the actors have power. I've gone to bat for my crews. And then people say, oh, she's a pain in the ass. I'm like, well, I just don't want people to die, actually. I also don't want to die. You know, is, is making a TV show really worth it? somebody falling asleep at the wheel on their way home after 18 hours. Mm. And so I really do believe if we can use whatever our leverage is to stand in solidarity, if we can get not just 
you know, IATSE to strike. But if SAG can stand with them, if the WGA can say, yeah, we're in the writer's room, we get to go home at seven o'clock. This is insane that the crews stay at work till 4.30 in the morning. We have to be able to do something together. We have to be able to leverage our collective power because if any of us are suffering in our workplace, especially because of unbearable hours like that, it means it's happening to all of us. And I, I don't know how to stomach that. I don't want anybody to go through that. I don't want anybody to go five days without seeing their kids or their spouse or God forbid, get in an accident on the highway going home. I just think we can do better. Thank you so much for shedding that insight on the industry, Sophia. And I mean, what you're talking about, it's not just fair labor practices, right? But it's also about the impact that these unfair working conditions have on on folks' mental health. The fact that it has to be you and your colleagues, you know, having to go to bat for folks working on your crew, raising money, and that those labor practices weren't already established from the beginning isolates an intense structural issue, which is is why, as you're saying, unions are, are just so essential. And this leads me to a question for you, Jim, which is that, you know, bringing things back to Ben, he spoke to us about his own mental health during the pandemic and about how he started taking medication. And, um, you know, Wilmer started this this whole Six Feet Apart series on Instagram where he was talking to essential workers, which inspired this whole podcast after going to a grocery store and witnessing mistreatment of grocery store workers. And from Ben's story and, you know, what Wilmer experienced, I can only imagine what so many grocery store employees endured just while literally working to keep customers with food in their homes. So was Ben's story of, you know, dealing with the impact of the pandemic on his mental health a a very common one that you dealt with with folks in your union during the pandemic? And, you know, as a follow-up, as a union, what were the things and what are the things that you do to support folks when they need mental health resources? Yeah. I mean, Ben's story, sadly, was not an uncommon story. It was a more common story than even people realize. I mean, you know, I mean, mental health on a whole, and we're starting to have this larger conversation around mental health and not being ashamed of having mental health issues. And we've seen a lot of athletes come out and stop, you know, didn't want to compete, right? You know, having the conversation and giving Ben and all those people courage enough to say they have mental health issues. I think that's another change that's happening here. I think people are starting to realize there needs to be a better collective good for all of us. But just imagine a grocery store for a second. And if you think about what happened and what transpired over the pandemic and since then, most of these workers, and this isn't even non-union workers, right? Less than half the industry is organized. I mean, if you think about it more broadly, only 10% of private sector workers in the country are in a union. That means nine out of every 10 people that work in the private sector don't have the ability to advocate for themselves, you know, without mm-hmm. any retribution. So that's just the thing to think about. Now think about grocery stores. When they were told, these most of these workers are minimum wage workers with very little benefits. And they're told they have to enforce a mandate of masks in their stores. And so we've had kids, even in our own union, where we had 17-year-old kids being put at the front of the store and getting into arguments with 45-year-old adults about wearing a mask where they got into a fight, fist fight, physically hurt, right? You know, I mean, you don't pay them enough, you know? And so imagine that. And then you go into the grocery store and you're sitting there. And in the beginning, when we didn't have any idea how you could track this, people wearing gloves and masks and like full body suits. And you had no idea how this was contracted. You heard about all these deaths and you're coming in to work for $15 an hour to deal with people yelling at you. Just imagine the mental health crisis you're facing, right? But if, and your choice was you either work or you don't eat. So it's like you had no other choice. And then you had to go home and be worried that you would infect your parents, right? Or infect your kids. These are workers that had minimum wage. They couldn't afford childcare. 
So their kids weren't in school. So how do they, how do they go to school? Like, how do they? And Jim, you played the numbers, Jim. Like, you you know, I, I played the numbers when I went to the grocery store and what MR was uh, reminding us of, of what inspired the journey of the Six Feet Apart. And then eventually we got to this podcast. Dude, I went to the grocery store and you know what my grocery store work? And this is before they even say, let's put a plastic divider. Let's have hand sanitizers everywhere in the grocery store. This is before all of this. They went a couple of months before any grocery store got smart about how to protect their own. So you're talking about then seeing 400, 600 customers in one day handling their credit cards, handling their groceries, bagging their stuff, giving them the receipts. Like, And then you get a phone call from a customer that says, do you have toilet paper? And when they say, unfortunately, we're right now for the day, we'll be stucking back tomorrow. Somebody says, well, fuck you. I hope you get COVID and died. They're truly on verbatim telling you what they're getting on the phone. Yeah. Insane. And, you know, now imagine like when it all first started where they were told they couldn't wear masks. So then we get into sort of the rhythm. We start to understand a little bit more. And what our union did is we advocated, you know, at the state level for expanded sick pay. We advocated for the six foot separation. We, we fought with our employers to make sure that they provide for all these PPE. PPE became like the big word, right? We advocated at the city level for hazard pay for workers. When grocery stores in the beginning were giving workers an extra $3 an hour appreciation pay, and then they realized, oh, look at this, our profits went way up. We don't want to pay these workers any more money. So the union went out and advocated for hazard pay. We said, you know what? Enough is enough. If you're not going to do it, we're going to have cities make you do it. And then we got that done. You know, Thousands of workers got $5 an hour extra because we advocated the city level. So the, the union became a place in which workers felt like they could go to to really advocate for themselves. But then, you know, you get through this pandemic and then look at all the other things that grocery workers are paying with. I mean, how many times in the last six months have we seen shootings at grocery stores? I mean, just just imagine challenges, you know. And so the grocery store is really a place where all the issues of society come to bear, right? All of them, right? Public health, lack of access to food, low wage jobs, you know, management beating you up, telling you have to work or you don't work, right? You know, all of these things. And then like people angry coming into the store with whether it's fistfights or guns. I mean, it's just, it's incredible, you know, but no, that's why I think these folks that do these service jobs, not just grocery workers, I mean, those are who we represent, are really just trying to make it and to provide an essential service during this time is just incredible. And I, and I feel honored and, and it's a privilege for me to do this work because I see myself in that person, you know, 25 years ago. Something that you said, Jim, really, I would love to know what you think. Sorry to hijack your show, guys. <laughs> Wilmer and MR are supposed to be this asking is your show. I could gladly sit back. <laughs> um, I, you talked about how all of these issues of society converge at the grocery store, right? So it's a, it's an incredible test case. It is a microcosm look at the macro of what's happening in so many industries simultaneously. And just like grocery store workers and the IATSE workers on our sets, what drives me up a wall is that when we're talking about minimum wage jobs, we're having this whole conversation about a living wage. You've got to pay your workers a living wage. I'm so sick of the idea of a living wage. Why aren't we paying workers a thriving wage, a safe wage, a healthy, family-supportive wage? When you talk about the work you guys did, and thank you so much that you went out and you forced it, And when the stores wouldn't do it, by the way, stores that we all know are making record-breaking profits. I mean, Whole Foods got acquired for $13 billion. Don't tell me you don't have any money to pay your workers. (laughs) Transparency exists now and we have the receipts. But this idea that you had to go out 
and get the city to pass a law to get the hazard pay for the $5 extra an hour. That's available. The money is available. And this idea that we look at union workers, a lot of blue collar workers, a lot of quote minimum wage workers, and we say, they'll deal with that. They'll be just fine with that. I don't want people to be fine. I want people to be supported and to be healthy and to, you know, be able to buy books or go on ski trips or freaking, you know, collect weird things from Etsy, like whatever you want to do in your life that makes you happy. And I want to know how those of us who care about the people that we see every Thursday night at the grocery store or, you know, the second assistant camera guy, anybody in these unions we're talking about, people who we know are essential, how do we support the work unions like yours are doing? How do we get the word out? How do we add our voices? How do we sign petitions? Who do we call? Where do we send emails? Like, I'm ready to go. So tell me what to do so I can tell all my people what to do. I mean, I think it's a multitude of things. Number one is having these conversations in forums and places where we don't typically have these conversations and bringing these voices to the forefront. Because again, I think Mm. narrative is more powerful than any fact. Fred Ross Sr. is a longtime organizer. He, you know, he recruited Cesar Chavez and he said, facts don't move people, stories do. That's a hugely important thing. And we, I think we undervalue that. But it's more than that. It's like using your platforms to when these campaigns come up to promote them, right? Because decision makers and policy makers, why they tell you all when you first get just be quiet and work is because they know your voice is a powerful voice when it's used properly and they don't want to disrupt the status quo because those that own the movie studios own the grocery chains, own the, you know, I mean, look, I mean, Amazon's the biggest one, right? Think about Amazon. Amazon is exactly what the world is coming to, right? They own movie studios, they own grocery stores, they own own everything, and they're just building everywhere, right? So imagine if we can take on a company like that and change the way that they behave so that no longer workers have to go out on strike to get a face mask, no longer people have to fight for it. I mean, in $15 an hour, I'm sorry, to your point, Sophia, $15 an hour is not enough, and that's not even the federal minimum wage. Which is seven twenty five an hour. Forty hours at seven twenty five an hour is about three hundred bucks a week. That's fifteen thousand dollars a year at full time, right? Just imagine that. Like, who can live off of that? So we have to use our platforms to advocate. And when campaigns come up, you know, getting those voices out there, but they're not going to give it. We have to take it, you know, because right now they're all going to space, right? Instead of actually paying their workers and then thanking their workers for going to space on their backs. <laughs> we have to say enough is enough on that. We're getting to a point in the conversation where, one, we're fired up for what now? What is the next phase of the conversation? How do we envision? And and look, the philosophy that we always use here on the show is what is Mount Everest? And how do we start walking towards it? You know, what is the next? And, I, and yes, there's many ways in which you can, you know, call your congressman, your senator, your local officials, you know, make sure you have enough signatures, making sure they are paying attention that in their municipal area or zip code they oversee, there is a great deal of demand for uh, these topical conversations, right? I mean, that's one level of it. As a community, besides the calling, how can we be there for the force, right? What is the most obtainable thing from a neighbor that can happen for your local workers? 
we may not all have the answers, but we we may have some type of resources. And Jim and Sophia, I'd love for you to maybe think a little creatively, like how can we be there immediately? How can someone who's listening to this go, oh man, I can do that right now, you know? And I think that there's something hopeful about that as we start wrapping up our conversation. We'll start with Sophia first. I had that thought this weekend. I was driving up toward Central California and I was watching, it's, you know, harvest season for whatever's growing. And I'm looking at all these people out working the fields and I'm thinking, what can we do for these people? Could we talk about surprising folks with food trucks on a Friday night? Could we, like, what is a gesture of just appreciation and love? And usually mine revolves around food because my family's Italian and like, that's just how we do things. So start of the pandemic, you know, we couldn't leave our houses and, and I was obsessively making chicken soup at home. I have like a 24-hour recipe. It's a thing that I really put a lot of love into. And I was like going running through the street. I was freezing giant jars, you know, like the biggest size mason jars of soup. And then I was chasing down JP, my UPS guy, who's literally my favorite person in my neighborhood. My neighbors are great, but JP's the best. I was running after people just being like, how are you doing? Can I put this here? I won't come near you. I'm just, I'm going to put it here. You get out of the truck. You come get the thing. Has anybody fed you today? What do you need? And that became a thing. And, and now I keep bees. And once we started harvesting our honey, I'm running after everybody, giving people honey and making sure just that they feel a little bit loved. So I do think to your point, Wilmer, we can do things as one of one in our own communities with the people that we touch and that we talk to. I make such a point of having long conversations, you know, anytime I'm in a taxi or on an airplane with whoever's working or at the airport or at the grocery store, I really want people to feel seen and appreciated. And I would love to do more. I would love to do something for an entire farm staff. I would love to do something for an entire union. That's where I wonder if our groups, our communities could advocate, support, like what, what can we do? Yes, it starts with us. And then how do we make it bigger? And maybe that's where Jim knows the answers. Mm. Pressure. Uh, (laughs) You know, I I do think it starts small. I think sometimes we want to get to this place where it's like, you know, how do we do this magically transformative moment? If you think back to history, it's like, we were always taught Rosa Parks, once she stopped, you know, saying, no, I'm not going to go to the back of the bus. The whole thing happened. If you peel the onion back a little bit, you notice Rosa Parks went to 20 years of training to make that point, right? So how do we build into something? It is doing these little things. It is going to a UPS person and chasing them down the street to give him chicken soup, right? It's going to your grocery store and saying, hey, you know what? I mean, if one of you went to the grocery store and said, hey, look, I just really appreciate what you do every day. That alone is transformative, right? To see people. I think it's important for all of us to see each other in a, in a big way. And then how do we create events around seeing each other? There's magic that happens between people when we get together. There's just a magic that happens that you don't even know what could come of it. And then I think when these other big events happen and mobilizations, then obviously, yes, use your voices and platforms to elevate those those places. But don't be tied down to thinking that's what has to happen, because actually that's an important thing, 100%. But the more important thing is how do we do little things every day to acknowledge one another and to be human? I mean, how do we grab our humanity back? Because if we share core fundamental values that we're human, we make decisions based on that. And then we can move policymakers and business leaders and others, and we can cultivate folks to come into those spaces. So when you're in a position of influence, 
that you then don't make the same decision, right? That we build commonality in humanity. I mean, it's, I know it's a sort of weird, but it's the thing that I think we need to do because I think it's too much we search for the, the, the sort of, I have a dream speech. You know, there's so much that goes into before you have that speech, right? Like yeah. moments. And so I think that's what we have to really build. And, and make it worth it, right? So I, I'm. thank you, both of you, for bringing so much light to this topic, to this conversation, for humanizing so many of their stories and, and really paving the runway for, you know, that running start at the big picture, right? And what I take away from this is something that doesn't get more real for me personally, which is reminding our essential workers, they are in the people business. They literally are in the of-service industry. And when you think about that and the emotional exchange of humanity that can happen in between customer and essential worker, that's where we got to start, to make it worth it. We have to make it worth it for them to have a moment in history when they get the call that's bigger than ourselves, that they understand the sacrifice is worth it that the stress is worth it so they can keep fighting and they can hang on. So when the storm goes by, they can wait for the sunrise and they can take a deep breath and know that the big picture is underway. But at the very least, the community is besides them and by them and making it worth it. And um, I just want to say so much gratitude, Sophia, Jim. Thank you for your vision on this and for your expertise on this. I have a, more than a door open, the garage, um, you know, windows, everything's open for you guys to come back in and continue to elaborate more on this and any other subjects that may be passionate. This is your show. Wow, I'm so inspired after that conversation. I mean, both Sophia and Jim really painted a picture about how Ben's story is about our common humanity, right? We just want the best for our neighbors and it's energizing to speak with folks who are so committed to taking action to do just that. Agreed. This work should not just be some, you know, like noble self-sacrifice, so to speak, that essential workers are unaware that they're signing up for. But that being said, I also so appreciated Sophia's approach coming from a place of love. I just, I can't really get over that image of her chasing down folks with chicken soup on her street. I just totally love it. Would you say that is quite literally chicken soup for the soul, MR? <laughs> yes, Wilmer. Yes, I would. Of course, because we love dad jokes, right? Oh, we love them. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Well, next week we'll be in conversation with essential worker Ashton Pittman, a journalist for the Mississippi Free Press who worked during the pandemic to provide responsible and ethical reporting to his community. After a conversation with Ashton, we'll have a roundtable discussion with Maria Hinojosa, a longtime anchor of Latino USA on NPR and founder of Futuro Media, responsible for the political podcast In the Thick, which is co-hosted by our second roundtable guest, Julio Ricardo Varela, the interim co-director for Futuro Media and founder of Latino Rebels. Essential Voices with Wilmer Valderrama is produced by me, Mr. Raquel, Allison Shano, and Kevin Rutkowski, with production support from associate producer Lillian Holman, executive producers Wilmer Valderrama, Adam Reynolds, Leo Clem, and Aaron Hilliard. This episode was edited by M.R. Raquel and Sean Tracy and features original music by Will Rosati. Special thanks to this week's essential voice, Ben Hess, and to our thought leaders, Sophia Bush and Jim Arabi. Additional thanks to Mika San Giacomo and to the United Food and Commercial Workers Local 5 Union. This is a Clamor and WV Entertainment production in partnership with iHeartRadio's My Cultura Podcast Network. For more podcasts from iHeart, 
Visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. When are you an American Express member? When you travel with the American Express Platinum Card and have access to Centurion Lounges at over 40 locations worldwide, you're a member. When your American Express Platinum Card gets you seated at exclusive tables at renowned restaurants through Global Dining Access by Resi, you're a member. When you arrive at live events through dedicated American Express card member entrances at select venues, yeah, you're a member. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. La cual pudiera llevarme al hospital, así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente. Una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita prevnar20enespañol.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. When you buy a new house, you might say, Shut the front door. Winning. No, seriously. Shut the front door. We own this house now. But you actually need to say, Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. The local State Farm agent is there to help you choose the coverage you need. Welcome to my crib. <laughs> no one says that anymore, but I don't care. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois.